Welcome to another episode of the Franchise Academy. Today's episode, we have a special guest, Brandon Webb, who is a former U.S. Navy SEAL sniper. He's an entrepreneur. He's a New York Times bestselling author, and he is an avid pilot. He has multiple businesses in media and publishing and reaches over 50 million people monthly with all his publications and various social media platforms. He's going to talk today about how he thinks franchising is a great route to go, especially for veterans. Veterans make great franchisees because they know how to follow a procedure and a process. And so we're going to talk a lot about that and talk about how a veteran could actually get a free copy of my book, Franchise Savvy. So take a listen. I think the franchise business is a great business because it gives you a whole toolkit and support system to to get a proven business model off the ground. You know, it's something I talk about with my own audience sometimes is, I mean, now has never been a better time to buy a business. So stay tuned and listen to Brandon and I talk about how veterans could get discounts on franchises and how you could finance a franchise pretty inexpensively and uh, possibly for almost no money down through small business administration with uh, various loans that they have for veterans. So again, stay tuned. It's time to go into business for yourself. Get ready for another episode of the Franchise Academy podcast. Education, insight, and inspiration. Here's your host, small business and franchise expert, Tom Scarda. This is Tom Scarda from the Franchise Academy. Want to uh, welcome Brandon, Brandon Webb. How are you? I'm good. I'm a little under the weather, but I'm coming out of it. So I got that yeah. crud that's been going around the city. Yeah, yeah. And so you're in Manhattan right now, right? Yeah, I'm in Manhattan. I'm, I'm looking forward to going down to Puerto Rico soon, which I have a house. Oh, nice. Being remodeled right now, which is a not a fast process. <laughs> right. Yeah, remodeling. Oof. Definitely uh, been through that once or twice. So Brandon and I met, I don't know, two, three years ago at Ventura Air uh, on Long Island. A yeah. friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, right? Nick Tarasio has an awesome outfit out there. And um, are, are you keeping your plane out there right now? I've had a plane at Nick's place for about four years. I just recently sold a couple planes. I'm reshuffling my personal fleet. I'm trying to downsize so I don't know. I don't know if the next plane will be at Nick's place or not. It's the easiest place for me to get to is White Plains. Oh, okay. It's yeah, twenty make- minutes on the train, but the problem is also Nick's business has grown. He's bought a couple more jets, yeah. and he doesn't have room for me anymore. So it's a good good problem for him. Bad problem for me. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and and a bad problem for me too because he got rid of all the Cherokee Pipers. Yeah. that I was training on over there. And and so I'm like, oh, man, and, and I feel guilty. I don't want to go to another, you know, school. So I've got to figure something out. He's like, why don't you just buy one? I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for that. I, I have 94 hours, but I, I need a little bit more before I buy one, I think. I mean, they're cheap to buy. You can buy a Piper or Cessna, pretty, pretty inexpensive, a lot, lot less than what people would 
Yes. Yeah, I agree. And the thing is, if you were to buy one, buying it from Nick's fleet and, and the kind of maintenance that the crew does there, Ventura Air is just second to none. They are meticulous about everything. Yeah. So, you know, you're buying a great plane when you buy it, when you buy one of his planes. And what I remember is you had that, that blue Navy plane that was parked there for a while. What kind of plane was that? Do you remember? Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Uh, it was a Vans RV6 Alpha. Uh, but I, I sold that. Oh, you did? sold that last year. I bought a military plane called a TB30, which was a, one of the best planes I've owned. But I I, um, I put that. I ended up making some money off that sale recently and then put a deposit on another another one just like it. So, But I, I won't get it until the springtime. Fun. That's so fun, though, right? I mean... Yeah, I love flying. Like it's, it's a passion for sure. Yeah, it is. I think it is your biggest passion as, as I watch you on uh, Instagram and all the other social media out there. Yeah. Did you come from a military family? No, my parents were hippies. Uh, my dad was <laughs> burning draft cards in the 70s. Uh, <laughs> he was from Canada. My mom's American. And um, I mean, I can give you this story, the quick story, but yeah. um, please. He married my mom, moved her up to Canada, had myself and my sister. Uh, I was in Canada in the middle of like the Rocky Mountains um, east of Vancouver and just kind of grew up in the wild. And my dad had a construction company up there. He ended up losing the business and, and deciding to pursue his and my mom's lifetime dream was to sail, to get a sailboat and do and cruise around the world. So uh, we bought, we moved from Canada uh, when I was about 10 years old, bought a, a 47 foot snowboat. They moved the, uh, the family on the boat. We lived in Cal and we sailed from Vancouver to California, lived on that boat five years, sailed all over the world, Mexico, South Pacific. Wow. Um, I, I grew up working on boats. I got my first job when I was 12, working for tips on a scuba diving boat out of Ventura Harbor. Um, and so I had worked summers and weekends and it was a great experience. I learned how to, you know, the captain taught me how to dive. I essentially grew up on that boat and the last big trip my parents took us on, I was about to turn 16. And by that time I was a full paid deckhand. Um, I would, I would as a 15 year old kid drive the boat an hour take an hour shift driving the boat at two in the morning through the shipping channel with, you know, 40 passengers sleeping below. So I was a pretty confident deckhand and diver and went on this big trip with my parents and I made it to Tahiti and my dad kicked me off the boat because we were like just butting heads. <laughs> and he said, look, it's obviously you don't want to be here. And it was like having two captains on the ship. We were arguing about everything. And I knew a lot, but I also had a chip on my shoulder. But I, I learned an important lesson that, that there can be only one captain on the ship. That was my dad. Um, so I left, I left home in Papa'ede, Tahiti, and found a boat that was sailing to Hawaii. I crewed on it to Hawaii, uh, came back, finished school, joined the Navy, and <laughs> spent a couple of years as a search and rescue swimmer in the – in the Navy, but joined to be a SEAL. These days you can apply and go straight into the training program. When I joined, you had to take a regular job and then apply. 
Um, so I, I applied twice. The first time I got denied, they just, the job I was in, it was a search and rescue swimmer and helicopters. And it was a undermanned job. So they didn't want to let me go. No. Uh, then I just, you know, became such a pain in my chief's ass the second time around <laughs> that um, he was like, okay, I'll, you can get out of here now. And I classed up with uh, Navy SEAL training is called BUDS. It stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. And I was BUDS class 215. I, I, we, we started with around 220 and, and 23 originals graduated like yeah. seven, seven months later. So that's kind of how I made it into the, into the SEAL community. But yeah, I could keep going if you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, you know, not the average childhood, first of all two little business lessons that you brought out. One is there only could be one captain on the ship. Yeah. <laughs> and the second lesson was, wow, I just blanked out. What did you just say? I'll tell you this. The, the reason I decided to join the Navy is because I had really good mentorship and, and a group of mentors on the boat that I worked on, the captains and the other deckhands really took care of me. You know, I was, you know, a little mature for my age, but I was still at, you know, 16, 17 year old kid. Right. And off of the boat, I had a group of friends that were my age that were just getting into bad stuff. Right. I, I lost one of my, one of my childhood friends to drug addiction. Mm-hmm. And, and so I recognized at an early age with the help of the captain and crew of the boat I worked on that your environment really does matter. And, and I knew I, I needed to get out of there. So that's why I joined the Navy to have it pay for my school. I didn't want to, you know, get into student debt. And, and I figured the GI Bill, which is an excellent program, um, I would join the Navy. And I'd read a book about the SEAL teams by Dick Marcinko, the first guy to really write a book about it uh, called Rogue Warrior. Mm-hmm. And I became fascinated. And, and I saw it as a way to not only serve the country, but challenge myself personally yeah but, but my lesson learned fortunately was you have to surround yourself with with the right kind of people um and i, and I still practice that today it's one of the reasons i'm a member of uh, i've been a member of the entrepreneurs organization where actually you know i met our mutual friend nick and, and then i uh, joined the young president's organization about two years ago and and i went from being like you know, big fish, small pond. Now I'm a small fish in a big pond and it's dark swimming around. <laughs> you know, I run a, a, you know, a low eight figure business, but the guys in my chapter, I think there's about 70 of us in the New York city chapter and, and the revenue generated by that group is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. So it's, I'm definitely a, a small fry, <laughs> but it, it forces me to kind of raise my game and, and think about things differently at a level that somebody who's running a $3 billion, you know, FinTech company mm. thinks. And so it's a great environment for, for me to be around. Right. And that's, you know, lesson number three. So lesson number two that I, <laughs> that I, that slipped my mind was that persistence pays off being a pain in your chief's butt and getting into that, uh, you know, seal training, being let go of the uh, other mission you were on the other assignment you were on. Uh, and then this third lesson, fantastic. And so. And persistence, it's a, it's a good point. You brought that up because look, I had my first, I was devastated. I joined to be a SEAL and, 
and went on. I went, I applied at every training command that I was in after boot camp to go to the program. And I just kept getting denied after denied. And then when I dropped my first official package, I thought it was a shoe in and, and then the, the squadron just said, look, we don't want to let you go. And I was, it was really frustrating, but you know, the perseverance, I think a lot of people give up too quickly. You just got to realize like life is going to throw up roadblocks in your way and you just got to, you got to go around or over them or through, through them sometimes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. And he, even my, my chief, it was one an example of like he wasn't a very good leader or or a good chief. He gave me a really it was the first time I really stood up for myself. This guy was from the south and he played favorites. He didn't like the fact that I grew up on a sailboat. Like he just mm-hmm. you know I, he was just really biased towards some of the guys in the shop. And and I had at the time in my rank I was an E four. I was the most qualified E four, and I held a collateral job essentially giving uh air crewmen official check rides in the back of the helicopter so simulating emergencies and i had to go to this school to get qualified and there was no e4 that had that qual there's usually an e two ranks above but my chief gave me a really crappy eval and i i knew i i knew it was personal and it was un it was unfair so rather than whine about it on the bottom of the evals in the military, you could check this box that says you want to submit a formal statement. So I checked the box, I wrote a <laughs> statement and I turned it into the chief two days later. And he, he was like steaming at the head cause he didn't, he didn't realize I checked the box and he's like, what the hell is this? Petty officer Webb? Like, what, what are you doing to me? And I say, look, I think I should have got a higher, rated eval based on these merits. These are the facts that I outlined in this letter. And we went, we went before our commanding officer, Commander Rosa. And, you know, and I made really, I really was careful that I just stated the facts. It wasn't me being emotional about like, oh, I'm being treated unfairly. Like, mm-hmm. this is what block one of this evaluation says military professionalism. And these are the requirements. And I'm like the top. I have all these, these qualifications. And this is why I should have been scored a 4-0 instead of a 3-0. Right. And I just did it like that. And my commanding officer turned to my chief and he says, Chief Carnally, what do you have to say for you? What, what's the deal? Like, what, what's your position? And he was just like, blah, 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 stuttering. And the commanding officer, which is unheard of because the chiefs are so powerful in the Navy, like the chief is the expert and the senior manager and my commanding officer looked at me, he's like, Petty Officer Webb, obviously your chief doesn't know how to write an eval. You write your own eval and turn it in. And so I, I wrote it my own eval and my chief could not get me out of there fast enough. <laughs> I was on the next, you know, I had orders to the next Navy SEAL training class, but it was, you know, it was the first time I had to really stand up for myself which I think there's a time and a place to do that and do it in a respectful way and in a more of a fact-based way. This, this isn't like, Oh, I'm going to get the chief in trouble and, and make up a crazy story. This is like, I'm just stood up for myself. So, I, and I think you, there are those moments in life where you have to do that, you know, or, or else it could, to me, that was a, a, a why in the road, right? I could have yeah. went one direction or another. 
you know, so well said and, and a great lesson there. You always have to stand up for yourself in a respectful way and, and claim your stature. And, and, it, and it's authentic. It's very authentic. People respect it. Yeah. It's the toughest thing to do, but people respect it for sure. I want to talk a little bit about your book, Mastering Fear. Yeah. Um, what's the premise? Tell us a little bit about the book. How did, how did, what made you write this? So Mastering Fear, I wrote this, uh, this book because I, I taught my, one of my closest friends how to swim when he was in his 40s, a very successful technology venture capitalist and best-selling author, uh, Kamal Ravikant. Huh. And I took, he had been coming to me and saying, I want to go to, I, I've never learned how to swim. I have this fear of the water. Can you recommend any courses? And I, I said one day, I said, you know what? Let me just teach you myself. And, and I really, he's like, well, people have tried that. And I said, like, just give me one week. Mm-hmm. And so I took him and, and I, I thought about how I was going to train him. And I wanted to take these very small steps and, and build upon that and use some of the techniques that I had learned as a sniper instructor working with the top mental management professionals in the world. And so I developed this one week curriculum for Kamal. And this was a guy that basically when we got in the pool the first time was couldn't even jump in. He had, he was gripping the stairs, entering in the water backwards, like clutching the side of the pool. That was Monday. And, and I would do these drills with him first, like face in the water, out of the water, in the water, out of the water. So you get used to breathing because, a lot of people are uncomfortable with the water. They don't like putting the face in the water. Right. And he did it a hundred times and he was like, okay, I get this now. It's boring. On to the next. So I made these small steps and told him to go home and visualize at night, like practice in your head. And by Friday, he did a cannonball in the 15 foot section, could sink himself to the bottom of the pool. Cause I, I taught him how to use his lungs as a flotation device we take mm-hmm. a deep breath of air our lungs fill up and act as a, a buoyancy compensator yep and he could swim he could swim the f- length of the pool back and forth not going to win any races but he, he was a competent swimmer and he said you know what the thing that i realized you did for me was you he's like i was scared because of your background that you were just going to throw me in the pool and say suck it up <laughs> i was like no that's not that's not the right way to teach. Um, and I think that's a very common misconception. I, I, one of the things I hate about that movie, American Sniper, is during the sniper training scene, the instructors are screaming and yelling at the students. And that's not the way we teach. You know, we were very like zen in, in their heads and giving them these like tools to deal with self-talk and visualization and, and visualizing perfection. So Kamal had that same, you know, probably perception or bias and then he said the thing i that you did for me was you you helped me confront and and overcome this fear and then you taught me how to swim then you taught me the strokes and that's exactly what i did and, and he said you have to write about a book about this because you changed my life and and i i was on the subway back with him that day i wrote a note to my agent uh, Alyssa rubin at paradigm and i said hey, I have this idea for this book. And so I, I wrote the proposal the next day and we sold it to Penguin the same week. Um, huh. And that's how the book came about. And it's not, you know, it, it's in, in YPO, we have a thing where we share 
we share experience. We try not to give advice. And, and that's kind of what this book is. It's me sharing my spirit experience with fear because everybody has fear um, and sharing other stories of people with their fear, whether it's career related. I, I talk about a good friend of mine, Betsy Morgan, who, who was the first uh, institutional CEO of Huffington Post. She left a very promising media career at CBS and to go take over the role of CEO at Huffington Post and Les Moonves, which was a very powerful guy in media. Mm -hmm. um, he laughed at her and he says, I can't believe you're leaving. Who the hell is going to read the news on the internet? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so there's, there's these examples of, of my own examples in the book, but also um, it's filled with other people who you would think, wow, this person, I can't believe this person has, you know, fear of switching careers. Um, to, to my friend C.J. Ramon, who was a Marine Corps veteran, was, was getting out of the Marines and tried out for the, the base position on the Ramones and got the job. But he said, I was terrified to go out and play my first gig because I just took over a spot for this beloved Ramon bass player. And he said the, uh, the crowd hated me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there were signs like, get the hell out of here. So um, yeah, I'm really proud of the book. It, I'm talking to my publisher now of, of adapting it for a younger adult audience, because I think it, it would really help a lot of kids, uh, especially in this environment we're living in today where America has become so, so negative in the, in the press and, and yeah. uh, people's opinions. And, and it's really, you know, I, I think now more than ever, we need tools to deal with negativity um, and, and and just being in this environment, right? So that mm. it's something I think the kids would really benefit from because I've, I've used it on my own kids and seen the results. Yeah, amen to that. The kids definitely do need it. And so it's available on Amazon, I presume. And, and Yeah, everywhere books, books are sold. Everywhere uh, books are sold. Everywhere books are sold. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, um, yeah, everywhere. Mastering fear. So it's it's just... You know, it's stories, of, and that's a great way to teach. It's, it's yeah. really the best way, the only way yeah, to teach. It's stories, but it's also, I, I broke it down into a, a system, you know, and so there is a system in there, but it's basically, you know, this isn't an academic look at fear. This is, look, real people, uh, successful people, and how they've, how they've kind of overcome uh, fear on their own and, and, and it's their stories. Cause I think we just learn better by storytelling. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's from the beginning of time, you know, we've passed on these, these uh, traditions and, and practices through stories. So I think that's the best way. Absolutely. I'm a big proponent of uh, storytelling, very involved in organizations that do that. And, and it's funny as, as we're talking, the audience that that's listening for the most part are maybe thinking about buying a franchise and statistically, in the franchise industry, only one person out of every hundred people that buy a franchise, there's only one out of a hundred actually buy a franchise and they go through with it. And the number one reason for not going through it is fear, fear yeah. of the unknown. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the franchise business is a great business because it, it gives you a whole toolkit and support system to, to get a proven business model off the ground. Um, you know, it's something I talk about with my own audience sometimes is 
I mean, now has never been a better time to buy a business. Um, you can literally buy, you can use an SBA loan, small business administration loan, and get the owner to carry some of the down payment and can get in, buy a cash flowing business for virtually no money down. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these baby boomer uh, business owners just want to move on. They put their kids through law school, medical school, <laughs> kids are successful. They don't want the business and they just want to pass on their baby to somebody else. And they're willing to get to creative financing. And I'm, I'm talking about businesses that are generating, you know, five to $10 million in top line revenue that are producing, you know, you know, net income of 300,000 plus And that, you know, it's an amazing opportunity out there to get to instantly, you know, plug in, especially on the franchise front, because once you get one franchise up and running successfully, I, I know a guy that owns a hundred plus white castles oh, wow. and he's generating over 150 million a year in, in revenue. So that's the thing. Once you get the system, you can go buy another, another, another. And next thing you know, you have, you know, 10 franchise, locations and you're buying up more and you have a very successful uh, profitable business model yeah and and what i always share with folks is that you know franchising is a business with training wheels so and that's why i bought a franchise because prior to that i was just you know government worker in the new york city transit yeah. system as a subway conductor and i needed i needed somebody to hold my hand yeah. and and also to your point there's really not too much of a barrier to get into a business you could really start anything you want the barrier is scalability. People just don't know how to get out of their own way to, to grow it. And, and franchising helps with that as well. Yeah. No, I think the franchise, I've been talking to a lot of military transitioning folks about how, how good franchises are as an opportunity uh, because, you know, the military transition is tough. It's, you know, mm-hmm. especially if, you know, they've been to combat and had some trauma, but that getting into a, franchise is a very structured environment, which I think is a lot better than yeah. in some cases to people that just get out and they're in a completely unstructured environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that causes a, a lot of problems. So that's what I do like about the franchise for the, for the veteran entrepreneurs. It provides that structured environment they're used to. And the um, sim- yep, I, I wasn't planning on, on talking about that, but let me bring it up since you did. So, veterans are really the number one franchise owners in concepts all over the country. And there's nine, there's 4,000 franchises in 90 different industries and there's a lot of help. So there's something called the vet Fran organization that's administered by the international franchise association, which automatically gives veterans a discount on franchise fees. In addition, just personally, I give a free book to any veteran that requests one. You just have to send me an email it's actually in my uh, email signature. Anybody who wants um, a book, my, I have a book called Franchise Savvy, The Six Strategies That Pros Use to Pick a Top-Performing Franchise. So totally easy. Just email me if, if you want a book. It's Tom at thefranchiseacademy.com. And I'll have your book, Brandon, on my site as well. Um, the link to, to Amazon, you could just pick it up there or right to your website as well. Who is someone dead or alive that you would love to have lunch with? Oh, dead or alive. I would say dead. It would be probably Einstein. 
um, only because I'm super fascinated with just the, the whole meaning of life and, and the universe and, and just he's such a fascinating, fascinating mind. Uh, alive, I would say one of the top ones would be Colin Powell, and I'm actually fortunate enough to our YPO chapter is having dinner with Colin Powell in November, so I'm really excited about that. Oh wow! Um, because I, I just I've heard he's like, and I know he's an incredible guy, but I'm just really one of the things I'm I'm struggling with lately is just how how much America has it lost its way with regards to foreign policy overseas. We have been in Afghanistan almost 20 years and I don't know why and, and nobody can give me a good answer. And I've asked politicians, they, they don't know or they don't, they admit they don't know or, or they give me a different answer. And, and that's like not a good place to be as a country. Um, and, you know, Syria as well, like we're kind of half in, half out to Syria and, and people don't understand a lot of people don't understand that part of the world and it and it's i get it it's very complex the the social religious economic factors at at play the geopolitical issues is very complicated but going up against assad in syria essentially is like going to war with russia china and iran right. and that's something i don't think a lot of people understand even in washington dc i i I would be shocked if most of those politicians could find Syria, the capital of Syria, Damascus, on a map without a, the help of a smartphone. <laughs> um, and so that's why I would pick Powell because I'm like, like, what the hell are we doing? Like, how, how do we, how, how do me and my fellow, you know, business leaders, you know, kind of like, what can we do? Because not, not only that, but even at home, right, we've got this situation in America where, we really don't have a middle class anymore. That's why another thing when I look at these politicians saying we're going to build back, you know, we're going to improve the middle class or um, build up the middle class. I'm like, it's gone. Like the middle class is gone largely. Right. The income disparity is so wide that and it happened relatively quickly that nobody's really talking about it. But that's why our politics have been pushed to the extremes because you know, these politicians have to pander to one group or the next. And that's why it's, you know, socialism and one end and you know and tax relief for the top one percent at the other um, but anyway i'm around, i'm on a full ramble right now that's the stuff that i think about because i i love this country and i want america to be a better place but we we all have to kind of pitch in and do our part like mm -hmm. that to me is very clear and and so the more smart people i can talk to uh, like like a Colin Powell, just a better better off I'll be to to kind of pitch in and do my part. Absolutely, and and I agree with you on all those points. I actually uh, had the opportunity to hear Colin Powell speak at a franchise association meeting about five years ago, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that actually. And he was great. Oh my God, what a great speaker! Just telling stories. Uh, one thing that I remember he said, he's like, one day you got this whole security force, and and you know you got your own jet. Next day, you're nobody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like it was like very, very weird for him. So, what businesses are you in right now? We we kind of skirted around that, talked a lot about seals and all that, but yeah. uh, businesses. Well, I, what are you doing? I was in a startup logistics company, but I ended up selling selling my share to my partner, um, and now I'm 
really focus on the business that I've had seven years now. Um, and I have two brands in where digital media and our digital media uh, content brand is softrep.com. Um, under softrep, we've got, you know, podcasting network, we've got video productions. Um, we do a lot of digital print content uh, related to foreign policy gear reviews. We're just starting to cover. Uh, we have one of our, one of our journalists uh, and, and our, all of our journalists are former military. So that's yeah. kind of our, our unique selling angle. And one of the guys is an up and coming MMA guy out of the air force, Connor. And so he's covering the kind of UFC MMA boxing for us as well. So oh, we serve a large male audience that are into military content. And that kind of, we have a, one of the reasons why the UFC was a, easy choice for us because we have a lot of crossover demographic into that kind of the MMA fans of the world uh, seem to also enjoy uh, reading about the guy, you know, the, the Bin Laden, Bin Laden mission where the SEAL Team 6 Red Team went in there to, to get Bin Laden. So yep. that's our content side. Uh, so three years ago, I launched the Craig Club. Um, it was really, you know, Craig Club presented by SoftRep. And the Cray Club was a monthly box. It's now a quarterly box because we just, you know, we grew so fast and we had a lot of growth problems. And I realized that a quarterly was a much better, uh, not only a better customer experience because we could take our time and really plan the quarterly box. And, and if, you know, we have three levels, but we only have four times a year now we ship, we ship rather than 12. Right. Um, and that monthly, you know, it was like the monthly system was like having Godzilla in your closet, just like banging, banging on the <laughs> door and waiting to get out every month. Yeah. Um, but that business has been good for us. And then we just started getting into more of an experiential uh, side of the business. So we have our content, the, the crate club, you know, our online store, but also we did a, a pilot course uh, this September for a kind of like a Navy SEAL weekend. We took guys and we did driving and shooting. Uh, it was a whole experience. And next year, uh, next October, we've already booked the dates at Virginia International Raceway. We're going to have five, I think at least five different uh, train, training offers. So it's like a sniper experience, uh, a kind of hostage rescue experience, offensive, defensive driving, a shooting experience so we've created you know i've turned it into a you know a million dollar plus weekend for us and it's fun and it, it's an opportunity to to kind of for a lot of our the community that we've built over seven years to come out and interact with these celebrity military instructors kind of like the military influencers of the world yeah and and have this like really cool experience that some of these guys that show up they're very successful guys, doctors, business owners. And they're like, man, I just wish I had it done. Join Delta Force or the SEAL teams. And now they can kind of get a taste of it yeah, um, and maybe bring their son along with them. So it's, it's cool. And I'm looking at actually turning that into a festival of sorts to have like a big headline band Saturday night and, and turn it into a really cool, fun weekend. Dude, that's brilliant. I love that idea. I have probably a hundred guys that will that could call today that will do that. Yeah. Um, 
and as you said, my you know my son Anthony and I will love to join that uh, maybe that next one in Virginia. I got I to check out that website. Where, where can we find out more? Are you set up yet on a website? Yeah, yeah. No, they can. You can go to softrep.com and and click into our uh, academy, uh, the academy section. It'll, it'll list all the courses out. Um, and, and VIR, it's called Virginia International Raceway. VIR is an awesome facility. Paul Newman used to race there. But they have not only a, a, an insane driving track, they have off-road driving, shooting ranges. It's like a, it's like an adult Disneyland of wow. sorts. I didn't know that. That's great. And so yeah. the, the website is soft, S-O-F-T. S-O-F-R-E-P. Um, it stands for Special Operations Forces Report, SOFREP, um, S-O-F-R-E-P. SOFREP, got that. Well, cool. What advice would you have to someone uh, looking for a business, starting a business or starting a franchise right now? I would say try and find a business that is aligned to something you're interested in. Because when, you're, when the business is is interesting and kind of feeding some of your, some part of your passion. It, it doesn't feel like work. And I feel like when you have that interest and passion behind the, the business, you, it helps you kind of get through the tough times. Cause we, I was talking, I just became a member of bunker lab, the bunker labs community, which is a, uh, I just spoke at their inaugural gala this, this week, but bunker lab, they are an incubator that helps veterans get into entrepreneurship. But we were, one of the guys there was very successful guy. Uh, He started plated um, and sold it to Albertsons for I think $300 million. But he says, we all have these WIFIO moments and WIFIO is, I gotta gotta think of the acronym. It's uh, we're fucked, it's all over. It's like one of those moments, like we're fucked, it's all over. So WIFIO, um, everybody has those with you moments and in, in entrepreneurships. And, it, and if you're passionate and really believe in what you're doing, I, I think that that helps you get over those tough times. But, you know, back to the business itself, it, it's never been a better time to buy a business. When you look at the top people in the world from an income perspective, I think it's something like 70% of the top, 1% are business owners. Right. So, and that's a reason for that. It's business, business ownership can be transformational. And I always love the person that says money doesn't matter because I would say in most cases they don't have money. Right. Um, and that's, that's why they're saying that. And look, the fact of life is money does matter to a certain point. If you have more money, you can get the best healthcare. If you have more money, you can get the best education. It, it's, and that's the facts of life. Like to a certain degree, like time is the most valuable thing we have, right? But at a certain level, especially if you have a family, which I do, and you have that responsibility, you know, I'm, I'm after hitting my numbers. So I know that my family's secure, not, not that I'm going to spoil my kids. It's just the fact that they can go to school with no debt. And if God forbid something happens to them, I have the best, I can get the best healthcare on the planet for them because they deserve it. And, and if you don't, if you don't have that, that money, you're not going to get the best healthcare. We've all, you know, poor people go to hospice where wealthy people would go seek treatment and, and extend their lives longer. And that's just the shitty fact of life, but that's the yeah. way it is. 
Yeah, no, I, I hear you on that. It's a blunt fact, you know, and, and if you make a lot of money, you could give it away to your favorite, you yeah. know, charities or people or whomever. I mean, in yeah. churches, whatever, synagogues, mosques, whatever you want to do. Um, and, and that's, that's the reason to do it is to, to go up a level, uh, for yourself. And by doing that, you bring others with you and, uh, you know, money, money, people that have money have a bad, it's just a bad rap. It's just a bad narrative and, and yeah. it's silly. Yeah. Uh, so what is um, one myth about uh, entrepreneurship that you would like to bust right here and right now? Um, I've got one. Um, I, so what I'm seeing in the modern, you know, up and coming entrepreneur is this myth of I'm going to, I need to raise money to start a business. And that's total bullshit. I, I started my company with $10,000 of savings and and took one i had one friend of mine that put in you know i, I think he put in 60 grand so we took seventy thousand dollars and turned it into a um, eight-figure business right that's not a that's a pretty efficient use of capital yeah um i've done a small sba working capital loan a few years back so i think the myth that you are going to go, Oh, I just got to raise money for this business is, is bullshit. Mm -hmm. And look, there's all sorts of businesses, but I would say 98% do not require They're 98% of the businesses that people are going to go out and, and start or, or buy. It's not the next Uber mm -hmm. or the next Google. Right. So in those, those there's a reason those businesses need an incredible amount of capital to get off the ground because they're trying to accomplish, you know, change people's lives in some cases. So, um, you know, and they're commonly referred to as these unicorn businesses, right? But most of right. the businesses aren't unicorns. So you really can solve, you can just sell some shit, make <laughs> the money and reinvest it and grow your business that way. And, and right. I think that I see a lot of these entrepreneurs out there, they're thinking, oh, I gotta raise, and look, there's nothing wrong with raising a little bit of money but thinking that, oh, I got to go raise a million bucks to do this business. I'm like, that's, that's, not, that's not required. And most savvy investors will look at them and go, yeah, these guys don't know what they're doing because, and plus, why would I? Look, there are restaurants in New York City that generate 15 million plus a year in revenue. But is that restaurant going to sell in 10 years for $500 million and return a 10 20 X on your investment. No, the savvy investor knows that that's not the kind of business. That's why I don't, you know, I invest in tech and real estate because tech, you know, it's, it, it's those, you're placing like small bets that return big. So that would be like the one myth I would say uh, most, most entrepreneurs and they get, because they're not used to driving sales, it raising money becomes almost like a, on a like welfare program of fundraising, right? Oh, we're out of money. We got to raise more. Right. So it's like, no, actually you got to just, you got to sell stuff, you know? And, That's great. And, and if you're not selling stuff, maybe you look at being in a different kind of business, you know, right. people aren't buying your stuff. Um, and so it, it really does come down to, to, to sales. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's um, really, you got to be driven, that's for sure. But you can learn sales really well, too. You know, there's a great organization called Sandler Sales, and uh, Sandler 
not only teaches you sales, but teaches you how to live a life um, of positive influence and uh, just a great, and it happens to be a franchise. And, and by the way, you could get into a franchise like that and make, you know, a lot of money for a $50,000 investment. You don't need a million dollars to start yeah. a franchise either. Yeah. So uh, I do like, I, I am a fan of the franchise model just because it is a relatively easy way to access a proven system and it's scalable. You can, you can take that franchise knowledge and, and, go into new territories by franchise rights overseas, different states, countries. Um, so it's, oh, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a great, it's a great model. Yep. Yep. It is. Yeah. So I want to thank you so much, Brendan, for, for your time. We, we would really just trying so hard to get you on this uh, yeah, podcast. It's really great, Brandon. So, so grateful uh, for you and for your service. Thank you so much and uh, God bless you. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate you having me on. This has been another episode of the Franchise Academy Podcast. For more info, go to our website, thefranchiseacademypodcast.com. Remember to subscribe to Tom Scarta's YouTube channel for educational videos on franchising, education, insight, and inspiration.